181 in your pew Bible, if you'd like to turn there. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of of rams, horns, before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every one straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests, who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the, while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of the ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on. And they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did this for six days. On the seventh day they rose early, at the dawn of day, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, Lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the trumpet of the sound, sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her, 
as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside of the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Curse before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Ryan, and I'm one of the pastors here. If uh, you're just joining or visiting us, I'd love an opportunity to meet you, but I'm glad you're here this morning. And if you've been with us, you know we've been in the book of Joshua. And for the past couple of weeks, we've looked at uh, this topic of taking the land or the conquest, uh, these big acts of judgment that we are about to see, that we are just now entering, as you just heard in chapter 6. And I, I start here to say this. I'm not going to speak uh, any more about some of the questions pertaining to the conquest or judgment and those matters. Um, if those are questions that you have this morning, maybe you missed the last couple of weeks, I would encourage you to go back and listen to those. This morning, what I'm interested in is, is more the mission, the purpose behind this. Um, so if we kind of put some of those other questions aside that we addressed, what, what is the purpose behind Israel coming in and taking out this land and, and, and their purpose their mission is to be a blessing to the nations. Um, th- this is the promise that has been going since Genesis 12, the promise God made to Abraham, that you will be a blessing. And the way that they will be a blessing is by receiving this land, which this morning I, I want to submit to you that Jericho, as we have just read, is not a battle that must be won by Israel. It is a victory that must be received. So that Israel may be a blessing to the nations by reflecting to the world what it is that they have been given. What it is that has been made available to them and also what is now available to the world. That is Israel's mission. And what we will find is that in the same way, this is our mission today as well too. That we are people, we are the church now that go out into the world to do what? To reflect to the world what it is that we've been given. What it is that we have received. And what is that? It is grace. It is always grace. And so I want to look at this story, perhaps maybe more familiar to some than others, the infamous story of Jericho, uh, in two parts. I want to look at it first, just what God has done for Israel. And then I want to look at what Israel must do. And then we'll see what this has, what this means for us um, moving forward. So let's look at that first one, what, what God has done for Israel. Um, again, Looking at the mission here, the narrative of Jericho begins with a problem, as you just heard read. Israel has crossed through the Jordan on dry ground. We we read that back in chapters 3 and 4. And they are camped now outside of the city of Jericho um, in a place called Gilgal. And we are told in in, in verse 1 here, if you look at it, that Jericho was shut up inside and out. 
because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. Now, why, why is this a problem? Why, why are we starting here in this story? Well, it's a problem for several reasons. Well, up to this point, Israel has been told that they're to go in and take this land to receive it. Um, but how are they to do that if, if the picture here of their first battle, Jericho, is such that they can't even get in there? Right, it's shut up. It's, clo- it's closed down tight. Uh, also, Israel is a people who, they just don't have the weapons and the military tools and, um, and you know, all that stuff to go in and take out this place. This is what it means to say that Jericho is closed off, that is shut up. And it creates a tension for the narrative, which is how will Israel take the land? How will they do this? Woodstra writes this, the purpose of this verse, though, is to describe the seemingly hopeless situation confronting Israel, a people unskilled in the kind of warfare that was now required. And isn't that, hasn't that really been the story for Israel all along? I mean, isn't that the narrative for them all along? Everything that Israel encounters seems hopeless. How are we going to get out of Egypt? How are we going to cross the Red Sea? What are we doing in this wilderness? What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? Now that we've come into this land, how are we going to cross the Jordan? Now that we're here in this land, how are we going to get into Jericho and do what the Lord has asked us to do? All of these things are problems for Israel, but they are not problems for God, which is the point. They are what? Promises. And as the maker of those promises over and over and over that we see, he is the one who makes good on those promises for Israel. And by verse 2, the tension is actually immediately resolved. So sort of a spoiler alert here. And the Lord said to Joshua, this is the continuation of, of Joshua's conversation back in 5, 13 to 15 with the, command, with the commander of the Lord's army. Says to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. Later in verse 16, we'll hear it again just before Israel takes Jericho. Joshua says, shout for the Lord has given you the city. What is what is the story underscoring so far? What God has already done for Israel. And what has God already done for Israel? He has already given Jericho to them. The battle is over, friends. Which is why as we read about the battle of Jericho, we learn that it's not really a battle in the first place. It is a victory. And victories are not fought. Victories are received Richard Hess writes, even though the people participate, it is God's divine work that will bring down the defenses of the enemy and allow no obstacle to withstand on withstand the onward movement of God's people into their divine inheritance. When we say that Yahweh is a God who fights for his people, we don't mean that he starts the fight and then he sort of expects his people or he expects us to kind of go in and finish what is left. No, the battle, friends, always belongs to the Lord. Beginning to end. What he does is he allows us the privilege of sharing in his victory. 
And we see this more clearly in the New Testament when Jesus, the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist tells us, comes to take away the sins of the world because the cross, as you can already see, right, is the ultimate battle that God fights for his people. The battle of sin and death. And guess what? In and of yourself, you are hopeless to fight that battle. I am hopeless in fighting that battle. But Jesus fights it and he wins it on our behalf regardless. And you, what? What we are invited to share in that victory. We're invited to share in all that Christ has won for you. This is what God has done. We are getting tastes of that here in Joshua 6 as God has already given what? Jericho into their hands. Remember, this battle, this taking of the land is a promise God made to Israel many, 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 many years ago. So like all promises God makes, it is not an if, but a when. Israel is not marching around the walls in the verses to come with their fingers crossed, wondering, is this going to happen? God has done this for them. He is the one who makes good on his promises. This is the significance of the very first verse as we enter the story. And it is, it is what drives the rest of the story as well. What is a problem for God's people is not a problem for him. This is what God has done. He has given Jericho into their hands. This is why Jericho is not a battle to be fought and won. It is a victory to be received so that Israel might uh, continue on with their mission of being a blessing to the nations. Now they must receive it, but how will they receive it? And this gets to the second part, which really uh, looks at the rest of the, of the story, what Israel must do. What Israel must do is they must receive this victory, but the way they will receive it is through obedience. It's through faithfulness. Obedience, then, is the instrument of receiving grace. Let me say that again. Obedience is the instrument of receiving grace. Let me illustrate that for you for a second. If I were to come in here with a present for you, right, a present being a gift an unmerited gift, and I would, were to give this to you, and you just sort of stood there with your arms to your sides, not receiving the gift, um, would, it, would, it, would it still be yours? Yes. Um, but would you have experienced it in its full and, it's, and the blessings that it is uh, to experience the gift and to take it and to receive it in that way? No. You have to receive it. You have to take it. It's how God works in our relationship with him. Obedience is how we receive God's grace to us. The New Testament will use language like repent and believe. What is that? That's obedience. To receive what? The grace that God has given you in himself. The land promise functions in this way. God has given it to them. But if they just stay camped at Gilgal, it's still theirs. But they haven't received it in such a way that they experience its blessing and more importantly accomplish their mission of bringing blessing to the nation. So what must Israel do? They must receive the gift, the victory God has won for them on their behalf. And how will they receive it? Through obedience because there is no blessing without obedience. And what shows us that more than the cross of Jesus? There's no blessing there's no salvation, as we will see, without Jesus obeying and going to the cross 
such as such was his mission mission this is israel's mission here on the pages of joshua and what i love about the jericho story is that it models what happens when faithful obedience is our response to god's good gifts to his grace to his victory on our behalf faithful obedience always reflects god's glory first but it also and this is a kindness of god to us assures us of his presence in the midst of obeying. Two little sub-points here for this last point. When Israel receives what God has done for them in faithful obedience, that obedience always reflects God's glory. It doesn't rob him of it. And I want us to see that in the story. Everything in chapter 6 is pointing to one thing after, well, even including verse 1, but after verse 1, for sure. It is pointing to the glory of God. We see this specifically in the instructions given to Israel as they take Jericho. First, visually speaking, and some of you might be visual people, you know, Jericho is a a military uh, fort. Um, And its size, just according to some people, is about four and a half acres. And just to put that into perspective, I think AT&T Stadium is about 35, sits on 35 acres. So this isn't, the, this isn't a massive place. Sometimes our, our cartoons or our imaginations can kind of blow this stuff up. And, and, and that's not so much the point as, as when we get into the instructions, when we see what Israel is to do in forming this line, this column of people, it's actually going to be able to surround this entire city, you know, more than, not, not, not twice, but before even, you know, re- the rest of the army gets around it. And as we read in, in the instruction here, um, what, what, what may be a little confusing, but just to kind of visualize it for you, is that they are to set out first and foremost with, with those uh, armed guards at the front. And then behind those armed guards is going to be seven priests with horns. And what, what, what's behind them is the most important part of this whole thing, and that is the Ark of the Covenant being carried by the priests. That is what is drawing all the attention. That, that is the focus. That's where the spotlight is in this column, in this line that is going to be going around the city. And what follows behind the ark is just the rest of the army, the rest of the people. Next, we see the order of the command. The, the commander of the Lord's army tells Joshua what to do, and then Joshua tells the people what to do. And that's important because Joshua is not going rogue here. He is God's representative communicating to both Israel but also the watching world who is with him. And so what he does is, or what he says comes straight from God. The instructions are that Israel will march around the city lined up as just described one time per day. They will march around the city for six days. So they'll march around the city, come back to camp. Get up, march around the city, come back to camp. On the seventh day, they will march around the city seven times. And on that seventh time, the horns will will blow and and Israel will shout and the walls will fall and they'll go and they'll take the city. As one commentator notes, I wonder what the soldiers thought of these battle instructions when Joshua told them what the plan was for taking Jericho, a city that was shut up. You want us to do what? This is not normal warfare here, just if if you didn't know. Um... We don't tend to take our trumpets into battle anymore, but that's just, just to sort of highlight that. There's a little bit of humor here. Why? Because this is about God. This is not an issue for him. Jericho is not a problem for him. 
but how his people respond, that is what is important here. And when we look at these instructions closely, we see that they are not arbitrary at all. Instead, their purpose, if Israel will obey them, is to bring glory to himself. Look at verse 5. The wall will fall down flat. What's the point of that? Not toward the city or away from it. Why? Because there is to be no confusion as to whose battle this is. If the wall falls towards the city, well, maybe Israel's army pushed it in. If it falls away from the city, well, maybe Jericho's army pushed it out to go fight Israel. The walls to fall flat down, to be certain that it is God's doing, that it is his battle. We see again, we move on to verse 10. Israel shall not shout or make their voice heard. Neither shall a word go out of their mouth until the day Joshua tells them to shout. This is the most confusing and unique to me. You know, in preparation for war, it was customary that a battle cry would be sounded by the oppressing army. And so if they were to go and even circle the city, they would be doing it and shouting and saying things to intimidate. But here, Israel's told to do the opposite. They're told not to say a word at all. Why? Because again, this isn't about them. Don't miss that. They matter, but they are not the point. Their silence until the proper time then will make certain that there is no question to both Jericho and Israel who is fighting this battle. Who will win this battle? Who will receive the glory? In this way, Israel's obedience will not rob God of his glory. Moving forward to verse 17 to 18 there. Here we see that if you think the emphasis of the story of Jericho is on the battle, the text does not think so. In fact, out of the entire chapter, only two verses, verses 20 and 21, are dedicated or devoted to the destruction of the city. But when we get to the end of verse 16, where Joshua finally gives the command to shout, you would expect the next verse to be, and they shouted, which is what you get in verse 20. But the narrator enters these instructions again to Israel pertaining to the ban, B-A-N, what we talked about two weeks ago and last week, to remember to keep yourselves from these devoted things. What is he doing? He's reminding them of their instructions of how they are to be obedient because this battle is the Lord's. Dale Ralph Davis says this, the story is told this way because obedience to God's word is more important than walls falling down. By such literary style, the author highlights the priority of obedience to Yahweh's commands over victory in itself. Again, what does faithful obedience reflect? It reflects God's glory. It does not rob him of it. Verses 22 to 25, as you notice, continue the thread of the story of Rahab through the judgment narrative. As if we could, the story is making sure that we do not forget of God's kindness and mercy offered to those who repent. Offered to those who turn themselves towards him. And then finally, the story ends in verse 27. The Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. All the points All of this points to God's glory, not Israel's. All of it, every single detail. When Israel receives what God has done for them in faithful obedience, that obedience always reflects his glory and it doesn't rob him of it. And it's worth us asking at this point, 
do I have the same mindset when it comes to why I obey God? Is my aim God's glory? Or am I in it for some quid pro quo? Scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Do I value the priority of obedience to God over what I might or might not receive from God just because he asks? In other words, if my obedience does not lead to blessing immediately for me, does that change whether you obey or not? For us, do we see even how our repentance is a form of obedience that reflects God's glory. We can be all about obedience. We can get busy. Right? We, can, we can do our quiet times and talk about those. We can come to small groups. We can go on retreats and conferences. We can be all about obedience with very little repentance to show for it. And that is a dangerous place to be. When my life is filled with very little repentance, you can be sure I am in some way robbing God's glory with my obedience. Because it is, in, it is his strength that has made perfect what in my weakness. Obedience can become for us the places that we go and, 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 the, and, and the areas of our lives that we put on display that we are really saying... I don't need Jesus to enter into this part of my life for me. I've got it. I've got it. And in that way, we are robbing him of his glory. Do you see repentance then as a form of obedience that reflects that glory? Probably one of the chief acts of obedience that would reflect that glory because it recognizes the problem that you have to begin with. And it demonstrates what God has done for you already. So God's desire is for us it's to use us in his plans, but not to share the stage with his glory. So when pastor writes, God's normal pattern is to work through the instrumentality of his people. But since we have this tendency to obscure God's splendor and to steal his praise, he sometimes sets our contributions aside so that we and others can perceive that the, quote, overwhelming power comes from God and not from us. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Would God set our contributions aside? Were they an attempt to share the stage with his glory? This is, this is just the first subpoint. Faithful obedience always reflects God's glory. It doesn't rob him of it. But I want us to notice as well, as we end this last point, that faithful obedience also, though, though, also though does assure us that God is with us. It will be through Israel's obedience and ours too that they actually meet God and are assured he is with them. And here's what I mean by that. When I am teaching one of my children how to ride a bike, I promise to be with them by running alongside of them and even maybe like holding on to the back of their shirt as they ride. Their job, however, is to pedal, is to keep their hands on the handlebars, is to be moving forward. But what always happens, what always takes center stage for them is, is not the obedience of riding the bike, but it's, Daddy, are you there? Right? Don't let go. I don't want to fall. But the only way they truly know that I'm there is what? Is when they fall. 
is in their obedience to ride. Because that's when I catch them. It's their obedience actually riding the bike that leads them to being assured that I am truly with them. It's in their obedience that they meet me and my promise to them. And that confidence does what? It perpetuates obedience. The same is true for Israel as they take Jericho and the land. In their obedience, they will be assured that God is with them. How can they not? They can't even get into this place. And they're going to go march around the city for all practical purposes, look like fools. And God is going to meet them in their obedience to him. This is really the point of the Jericho narrative for Israel because it is a model for what they will do for the rest of the book. It is a model for how they will take the land as they obey and take Jericho and know that the Lord is with them. This will send them faithfully into other cities, revealing that God has truly given them this land, that he is with them. Thus accomplishing their mission of being a blessing to the nations as they live in this land and offer the forgiveness that this God offers to those who would come through this land. Again, Jericho is not a a, a battle to be won. It is a victory to be received. This is what God has done for his people so that they might be a blessing. What does Jericho then do for us? What are we leaving with here this morning? And there's a lot here. Um, I want us to think about one thing, though. That, 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 that they're, 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 it's easy to contrast. I want us to look at the similarities here. That, 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 that Israel's mission is still our mission as well. We as the church are to bring blessing to the nations. How? By reflecting what has been given to us. And what has been given to you, the grace in Jesus Christ. Salvation in Jesus Christ. That is what has been given to you. Where Israel fails to obey in taking the land in the years and generations to come and even chapters to come, God had a plan to fix that. We, where, where he knew that ultimately the only way to accomplish Israel's mission of being a blessing was to secure this gift, this inheritance for his people by dying for them. That's the gospel. Where salvation was to come through Israel and the land, it ultimately comes through a cross. In other words, the cross tells us that salvation, friends, is not a battle to be won, but it is what? A victory to be received. For all the promises of God find their yes in him, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. That is why it is through him, through Jesus, that we utter our amen to God for what? His glory. His glory. And like any promise, like any gift, it must be received. But like Israel here, the mission for the church is still the same. Be a blessing to the nations. How? By reflecting what you have been given. Grace, not judgment. Mercy, not condemnation. Which is why as followers of Jesus, our primary identity... One of the things we're taking from the story, our primary identity as a people is not in earning God's love and his favor, but in receiving his love and his favor. His victory 
won for us on our behalf, sealed by his resurrection, and then reflecting that glory in our obedience to love God and neighbor. What is that? That is mission. That's what the church is for. In other words, our primary identity is being a people of grace. Not just to the ones you love, but to, the, but to your enemies. To the people you hate. Which is exactly what Israel is tasked to be. Because grace reflects what God has done for them. And grace never robs God of his glory. It has been grace that has been sending Israel into mission. And what grace does is it sends the church into mission as well. But friends, here's the, here's the difference. It doesn't send us into mission like an army. It sends us into mission like a hospital. A place where people can come and receive the benefits, what? Of this amazing victory. The benefits of forgiveness, the benefits of mercy, the benefits of grace that have been extended to you, not judgment. Why? Because this is what you've been given this morning. All of you are recipients of this victory. Whether you've received it or not is up to you. But if you claim this victory, if you claim this Jesus, if you if you claim this church, right, then that means you are on mission as well to be a reflector of that very reality that this is what I've been given. And I don't deserve this. He has just given it to me and the way that I love and the way that I go out and I engage the people in my workspace, my spouses. Your obedience is to him alone. And the best part about this mission, like Israel, is that none of us leave here. Right? None of us go into the world tomorrow with our fingers crossed, wondering if this is going to work out. We are people of the promise we are people who go into the world, not wondering if, right, but when, right? Not wondering will he, but he has. That is what the resurrection tells us. He has been obedient for us. He has died for us. He has resurrected for us. He has shared his victory with us. He is the blessing to the nations. Now, church, go and reflect that to the world and the way that you love and the way that you share forgiveness and grace and mercy. Why? Because it's what you've received. Reflect what you have been given. And if you're asking yourself, what am I reflecting? Ponder what you think you've been given. What the Lord has done for you. <clears throat> My girls, um, this is not something I'm, I grew up with. Um, my girls play a lot of house um, with dolls and stuff. And right now, our five and seven year old, they play so we play well together um, in their room. And and it's been fun, and interesting. I'll put it that way, interesting to see how this has sort of uh, matured a little bit and just grown because it starts out with dolls and you know there's a house there and somebody's going to the store and somebody's going to bed it's bath time and what are they doing but merely reflecting what their own life is um, but recently it's kind of grown to where they, they themselves are now taking on these roles and reflecting what it is that they're seeing around the house and so the other day I'm walking through the house and I just hear daddy Daddy, and, and that's me, that's me, and I'm supposed to respond to that as, as father. So I go into the room, and I'm just kind of like, hey, what's up? Is everything okay? You know, kind of excited that maybe, they're, maybe I, I, they need me. Um, I don't know. Um, 
But then one of them just sort of says, oh, no, 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 no. I'm playing dad and Bass is playing your daughter. And uh, I'm putting her in timeout. <laughs> okay. Children reflect what? In the purest of ways, what they've been given. Now, whether that's timeout or parents or siblings or life, right? They reflect that. They know what they've been given. I'm waiting for the day that that's grace to one another. Maybe I should think about that as a parent too. I don't know. But what have you been given this morning? What are you reflecting to people? Do you know what God has done for you? Do you know what he has given you in his victory? His cross is not a battle for you to be one, friends. It's a victory for you to be received. And that sends us on mission to reflect that reality to the world around us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of Jericho that points us in so many ways to your cross and its victory for us and how you do these wonderful things for your people. You give us your grace. Would we be recipients of that? Would we receive that? Would you do the miracle of softening hearts this morning to receive that grace, to be reflectors and givers of it? That we would make your mission, our mission as your church until you what? Till you return and come again forever to reign with your people, to be with us as you promised to be. We are not an if people, but a when. The promises are real. May we go in faith, believing those because of what we see in Jesus, our Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen.